Well, you know where we are. We're in John chapter 6. Um, I put the wrong thing in the bulletin. The, the bulletin says we're going to go from 52 through 68 or something like that, but I was a little bit too ambitious. Uh, so we'll be in verses 52 through 59 this morning. Before we begin, I'd like to give just a word from my heart, which I never do, uh, but I'd like to just say a few words uh, by way of perhaps preface or introduction. Um, chapter 6 of John is a, is a really, it is a glorious chapter. It is soul-stirring, it's cutting, it's comforting, but chapter 6 of John is also a very difficult chapter. Not so much because of the hard sayings of Jesus, although that's certainly one of the reasons, but more so because of the fact that there is so much incredible truth in this chapter. So many diamonds to mine, to mine rather, that it's difficult to decide from week to week on which diamonds to bring out. They are all important, absolutely. But one of the major aspects of, of preaching and in, in sermon preparation is deciding on which diamonds to bring out of the mine with you. Hopefully you focus on what the author, as inspired by God, intended for the passage to be about, and you don't just kind of pick your favorite part of the passage, uh, but the idea is to get to the heart of what the author, as inspired by God, is intending to convey in a particular passage. So when you prepare a sermon... And for you, when you study the scriptures, though you might never preach or teach, as you study the scriptures, you're the, you want to be found asking, what is the main point here? What is the, the central idea, not just what sticks out to you, but what is the central idea of this passage? You find that by diligently studying, finding key words, key themes, things you can often find repetition you allow the divinely inspired meaning of the text to reveal itself by studying diligently. And then there's chapter 6 of the Gospel of John that's just filled to the brim with truth, filled to the brim with important words and themes. Just very briefly, the word bread appears 21 times in just this chapter alone, just chapter 6. The words, different words for life appear at least 17 different times just in chapter 6. You have the references to Jesus coming from heaven to earth said a bunch of different ways. You have the theme of being raised on the last day over and over again. There's just so much here that it's difficult to decide on what to focus on. What's the central point? What's the main idea in John chapter 6? And this is important to bring up because we're not preaching, hopefully, sermons that are disconnected from one another as we work through John chapter 6. But what we're trying to do is get to the heart of what chapter 6 is about. And we do that in little pieces at a time. You can see that, hopefully, as you think back to John chapter 3. Hopefully your mind is jogged when you think of John chapter 3 and you think of the necessity for the rebirth. It's all about you must be born again and the sovereignty of the Spirit of God and causing regeneration. Then chapter 4, it's about the offer of, of Jesus as living water to all the world, not just Jews, but to Gentiles alike. But then there's John chapter 6. It's like, well, what's the main point here? The Proverbs tell us that there is safety in the multitude of counselors. So as I prepare, I try to hear from a multitude of counselors, a.k.a. commentators, guys who are much smarter than me, who have devoted their life to studying the Word, who have been gifted by God. And it's really funny to see how in John chapter 6, there's just not a consensus. This guy says that thing, and this guy says that thing. This guy says we divide it here. This guy says it's here. No, it's over here. Everyone is just kind of all over the board, and I'm reminded as I read that, and I come to the text like, well, what do I do? Is that, oh, 
that's right, we're reading the words of the incarnate God. It's going to be difficult to try to bring out all of the truth. We can't, first of all. We, we can only understand so much. But the, these are the words of the incarnate Son of God, and His words are profound. And as gifted as some men might be, as, as learned as they might be, they're still just men. And God is still God. His wisdom is profound and unsearchable. So I say all of that not to say, well, I figured it out, guys. Definitely not that proud and arrogant before you this morning. But instead, I, I want to humbly state what I believe to the best of my ability. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of John is about, in an effort to help us to keep in view the bigger picture. The bigger picture of what's going on in John chapter 6. I believe this chapter is here to teach us the big picture from 30,000 feet. That God's purpose in any situation is never frustrated by human activity. Never. God's purpose in any situation is never frustrated by human activity. Now I say that because as you move through chapter 6, it becomes more and more evident that there is this undercurrent, if you will, of the sovereignty of God. It's not at the surface. It's kind of hidden for most of the chapter. So I did a little bit of study on what an undercurrent is, lest I be found just talking senselessly, which I might do anyway. An undercurrent is a current of water that flows well beneath the surface of the water in the opposite direction of the surface. So the surface water might be going east and the undercurrent's going west. And guess what you would never see from the surface is the undercurrent. Guess what is very powerful and brings a lot of nutrients and is a huge part of sea life and even can affect our climate? The undercurrent. I didn't know that. If you look out at the body of water, you'll see water moving in a particular direction. And an undercurrent is often flowing in the opposite or just a different direction. And I think that that's kind of what's going on in this chapter. As we look at the surface, there's one thing going on. It's this people who are just obstinate and hard of heart and coming to Jesus for all the wrong things. And then it, it kind of builds to a crash landing at, in verse 50 or 66 that everybody leaves Jesus. And so we kind of look at it, and that's what we see. That's what's happening at the surface. But underneath all of that is the undercurrent of the sovereignty of God, completely unaffected by what's happening at the surface. Completely unaffected by the sovereignty, I mean, I'm sorry, by... <laughs> The supposed sovereignty of man. Man thinks that he is in control. Man thinks that he is doing as he pleases. And all along, God's purpose is prevailing. Now this is going to become more clear, I hope, next week. But as we look at these verses this morning, we want to kind of ask this question why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus say the things that he is saying in this chapter? Because remember, it, it's all building up to verse 66, that, that everyone leaves. Everyone leaves. We started with this giant multitude. Do you remember? At the feeding of the 5,000. And then what happened? All of them chased Jesus down, and that's the crowd that's before Jesus and that is the crowd that leaves in verse 66 to where they never followed him anymore. What happened? Well, if you look at the surface level, Jesus' ministry is failing. It's tanking. He chose his words poorly, probably. Maybe he should think about rewording his message. You know, maybe get a focus group together and kind of poll the room. At what, what really works well with a crowd? But under the surface, God's sovereign plan is prevailing unfazed by what is happening 
at the surface. If you will see that in this passage, and if you will hold on to that principle of how God works in the world, friends, that will give you so much peace in any situation. But that's for a different day. I want us to keep in mind here that Jesus is ever aware of that undercurrent of the sovereignty of God that is completely unaffected by what is at the surface level. So this morning, as we work through verses 52 to 59, we're going to see three different things. The intensifying opposition to Jesus. The intensifying opposition to Jesus. The escalating offensiveness of Jesus. And the life-giving offer from Jesus. So we begin by looking at the intensifying opposition. And before we do, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, I need your help. This is an amazing passage, an amazing chapter. As all your word is, surely. But I just pray for your help in this hour, in this time, to, to speak clearly, to speak faithfully to your word, that you would help us, give us the eyes to see great and wonderful things in your word this morning for Christ's glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The intensifying opposition to Jesus, verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, let us be reminded of how we ended our time last week. If you look back to verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is what they're disputing. How can he give us his flesh to eat? There is a distinct level of offendedness, if that's a word, in their statement. It's like a, like a frustrated disbelief. Like, a, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? You're, flesh? You're going to give us your flesh? You have to keep in mind, they are, of course, grossly misunderstanding Jesus. What do they think that he's talking about? Eating his flesh. That he's promoting some kind of cannibalism. And not just a cannibalism, which is already bad, but some sort of cannibalism that endures to eternal life. And so they're deeply offended by what he's saying. How can this man give us his flesh? They think he literally means that they have to eat his flesh. This is, of course, metaphorical language speaking of his work on the cross. We're going to come back to that later. But the opposition to Jesus in his words, it's, it's rapidly intensifying here. Think of this emotional roller coaster that this particular crowd has been on. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 6, like we talked about a second ago. They're following Jesus. They've, they've seen these amazing miracles. And then not only did they get to see people get healed, but then they got to eat this wonderful miracle bread. He just creates bread out of nowhere. You should have been there. You should have eaten it. It was amazing. It was the best food I've had in my life. This is the prophet who is to come, isn't he? Let, let's, let's make him king. Where'd he go? He left, remember? Because he knew that they were going to take him by force to make him king. So he leaves. Oh, it's okay, guys. It's all right. We'll find him tomorrow. Let's go get some rest. Let's go find him tomorrow. And let's tell him that we're going to be with him to fight against Rome. We're going to take back the kingdom for Israel. And we're back, baby. Let's go get him tomorrow. You know, and if he gives us some bread, that's okay. I'm not going to stop him if he wants to give us some bread tomorrow. And so they go chase him down on the other side of the sea. And they, how, did, how did you get here? There was just the boats, and we didn't see you get in the... How did you... Did he fly? 
this is the prophet who is to come, so who knows? Maybe he flew. And maybe he just disappeared and reappeared over here. This is amazing. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay. Hi to you too. I mean, we came here to see you. You're not seeking me because you saw the sign. You're you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay? Well, and then he goes to teach them about bread. That there is this better bread that comes down from heaven, that if they eat this bread, they will have eternal life. And what do they say? That sounds great. Sir, give us this bread always. Yes, that's why we came. Hey, we're going to get more bread, guys. That's why we came to find you. I, we just knew it. You know, you know over here, Billy over here didn't think that you were going to do it again. But I told him, no, he's going to do it. He's the prophet who is to come. He's going to give us bread. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What? He's going to give us his flesh to eat? And this is right after he's telling us that he's from heaven? Don't, that's Mary and Joseph's kid. He's not from heaven, but he's going to give us his flesh to eat? This is disgusting. I, I've never heard something so disgusting in my life. Can you imagine this emotional roller coaster that they've been on? They, they go from thinking that this is the prophet who is to come into the world, the excitement of that realization to now he wants to give us his flesh to eat. That's disgusting. Why would you say something like that? You know, maybe he's not the prophet who is to come. Maybe he's not. I don't know if the prophet would ever say something that offensive. The word disputed here really speaks to an actual verbal altercation that broke out. One lexicon says that it means fight. A fight broke out because of what Jesus just said. Can you imagine that? They, they were just ready and willing to make him king, and now they're fighting about what he's saying. And Jesus did this on purpose. And it's going to eventually end in verse 60. Many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And then verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If you have the NASB this morning, you see that the word is translated argue, that they began to argue with one another. This is a hostile scene, in other words. That's what I'm trying to put in your minds, is to, to put yourself there in that situation right now. This man, who is Mary and Joseph's son, just told us that he's going to give us his flesh to eat. There's a, there's a fight that's breaking out here. But what's very interesting is that this isn't a, a bunch of obvious unbelievers. You notice verse 66 had that very interesting word that after this, many of his disciples no longer followed him. These are his supposed disciples who are hearing his words and saying, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Now think about that because a disciple is someone who follows the teaching of another. They follow his teaching and now he's teaching them something that they just can't go with anymore. Uh, maybe he's not who I thought he was. I made a giant mistake. Do you think I can get my job back? This was a giant mistake. They're not just any group of people. This isn't even the Pharisees who are obviously openly hostile towards him. This is a group of people who are claiming to be followers of Christ. Not the 12 disciples, of course but people who are identified as disciples no less. So you would think that they would readily accept the words of their rabbi 
even if they had some difficulty with some of the things that he said, you'd think that as his disciples who are seeing him as the prophet who is to come would say something like, I don't know, Rabbi, this is a difficult saying. Could you please help us understand? You, you don't actually mean flesh, right? You don't actually, like, can you please help us to understand? Because I, I'm trying to get it, but it's a little difficult here. Or perhaps, I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but I know that this is the Holy One of God. So I'm just going to accept what he says because I know that he has the words of eternal life. But instead, what we get is an argument. Why is this? Why are they not willing to understand or at least seek to understand? Well, at the surface level, it's because they're carnal. They're not truly following Christ. As he said, you're not seeking me because you saw the sign. They didn't see what the, the, the miracle was pointing to. They just wanted more bread. So on the surface level, it's because they're carnal. They want Jesus for what he can do for them. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Their increasing hostility and opposition to his message proves that what Jesus said there in verse 26 was true. That they, they weren't seeking Jesus for Jesus. They were seeking Jesus for bread. And when Jesus said that he has bread, and it's his flesh, they said, whoa, no thank you. Never mind. We want bread. We want a king. We want a political superstar. We want a, a military genius. We want the kingdom restored to Israel. And that's what they thought they had in Jesus. All the while, the undercurrent of sovereignty flows unaffected by the hardness of the human heart. In fact, the true reason why they are reacting as they are reacting is because the Lord has left them in their hardness of heart. That's a hard saying. Because why did some of them understand and some of them didn't? He has chosen to give the son a people. You remember from verse 37? So the father has chosen to leave some people in their deadness in sin and hardness of heart while giving life to some others. So it's like this, that everybody's blind. And he takes some of the blind people and opens their eyes and gives them sight. Don't you remember that that's exactly what happened in John chapter 5? At the healing at Solomon's portico. Do you remember? There was a multitude of invalids. And Jesus walked up and how many did he pick? How many did he tell to get up and take their bed and walk? It was one. That's exactly a picture of salvation. Everyone is an invalid. Everyone is blind. Everyone is dead in sin. And he chooses to give life and sight to some. That's what's happening below the surface. We can't see it with the naked eye. Of course not. Because we're human, and we think in, in human terms. And I, I just wonder, if I was there, what would I think? Like, Jesus, can you just, just a little bit, I mean, just a, just a little bit, can you just pull a few punches? That's because I don't see below the surface. I don't often see what God is doing. Do you? Do you sometimes find yourself focusing on what's right in front of you? Looking at the surface, totally blind to the fact that God is doing something under the surface? See, Jesus didn't have that problem. He understands what's happening here. It's no different today, though, brothers and sisters, as, as offensive as this message is right here to these people, 
it still continues to be offensive to people who are still dead in their sin. They're staring at God incarnate in the face, and they're deeply offended by what he has to say. How much more will sinful people be deeply offended by what Jesus said when they're just reading it from a book? And insofar as much as they understand, that's all it is. Well, you just are reading that from a book. That's open to anyone's interpretation. And you're just interpreting it the way that you want to interpret it, you bigot. Isn't that what people say? The message of Christ has always been deeply offensive. It doesn't draw masses. In fact, it casts them away. That's what Jesus does in this chapter, and it's so mind-blowing and hard to wrap your brain around. There's thousands of people here, Jesus. How can this man give us his flesh to eat is the question that they're having to ask. But for today, how can believing in a man save me? You remember the words of the Apostle Paul, don't you? In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's The word for folly is Mariah. It, it's where we get our word moronic from. People find the message of the gospel ridiculous. It's not just that, well, you have your way, you know, and I have my... No, it's... The, I, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. You believe in a bloody sacrifice that that's going to be what saves what? And that's what Paul says, that it, it pleased God to save people that way. Through a message that is folly to the world. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified. It is a stumbling block to Jews. That word is scandalon. Does, what does that sound like in English? Scandal. It's scandalous. This is a scandalous message. So what's the answer then? For Jesus here, what's the answer? What do you do? People cannot tolerate the message. They're, they're starting to fight. A fight is breaking out. You're disturbing public peace here, Jesus. Come on. Can you just, like, just sink just a little bit? What does Jesus say? Does he maybe talk a little bit less about the offense of the cross and the wrath of God? Maybe a little bit more about grace? Well, let's see. Verse 53. So. It's an important word. So, you could say, because of that, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Isn't that just an amazing response? And it says... So, because they were so offended by what Jesus said, he turned up the dial. That in and of itself is a hard saying. This is love incarnate, my friend. This is God incarnate. And when they are deeply offended by his message, when they have it, find it very difficult to wrap their minds around. Jesus doesn't turn and say, guys, I'm sorry. I, I misspoke a minute ago. Let me, let me try to find a little bit easier way for you to hear what I'm saying. I'm just really a, one about grace. It's really just about grace and your relationship with me. 
That's how the Jesus of today talks. But the Jesus that we're in being encountered with in John chapter 6 says, oh, you're offended? Let me turn it up a little bit more. So what does he say? He doesn't even explain it. He doesn't even explain what he means. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, I'll tell you, unless you eat the flesh and you drink the blood, you have no life in you. Not only did he not explain it, but he added blood. Not only did he add blood, but he said, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you don't even have life. In other words, he made this a requirement. Before, it was just an offer that this bread is coming down from heaven. Whoever eats it is going to have life. And, you know, once you hear about flesh, if you want to go a different way, you could go a different way. No, he says, now, unless you eat it, you have no life in you. That is amazing. How would you have reacted? How would I have reacted? As his actual disciples even, maybe just as his 12, do you think that they're thinking, like, what is he talking about here? Guys, I'm not going to... Blood? I don't know about that one. Now, we live 2,000 years or so removed from this statement, but it's still offensive because it sounds a lot like cannibalism. Because we're talking about flesh and blood. But to a first century Jew, not only does it sound like cannibalism, but it also sounds like this man is telling us to do that which will get us cut off from the people of Israel and from God himself. What are we talking about? Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17.10. Talking about not eating meat with the blood. Specifically what Jesus is telling them to do. He says, if you do this, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This man, Mary and Joseph's son, is telling us to disobey that. But you're going to give us life in your flesh when God, when Yahweh says that he's going to cut us off from his people if we do that? This is so deeply offensive and it's not coming from the mouth of some old school, backwoods, hellfire, Southern Baptist preacher who has suspenders. I don't know, that's just in my mind. It comes from the mouth of the most loving person to have ever walked the planet. Isn't this just mind-blowing? For some reason, Jesus appears to be offending them on purpose. Now, I don't know. It sure looks that way. Because he is doing nothing to present the truth in a more palatable way. You know, we, we can hear the message about, oh, the bread of life. We can hear the message of, oh, you know, living water. But then he, he makes it so piercing. You have to eat flesh and drink blood. Why do you have to say it that way? They don't have the eyes to see or ears to hear that Jesus is not using his words literally. He is choosing his words very carefully, make no mistake, but he does not mean that they must eat his flesh literally. Hopefully, we don't have to explain that here this morning. But the crowd here, they can only understand what is on the surface. That sure sounds like Nicodemus, doesn't it? You have to be born again or else you can't see the kingdom of God. What did Nicodemus say? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he crawl back into his mother's womb? What? What is wrong with you, Nicodemus? Obviously, that's not what he meant. What about the woman by the well who couldn't grasp the spiritual nature of Christ's words either? Jesus said he offers living water that if anyone drinks it, it's going to become in him like a, a well of, of living water bubbling up to eternal life. And she said, that sounds great. I'm tired of carrying this bucket. I won't have to come out to this well anymore. This is how we are is the point. We are this way in our natural humanity. Aside from God opening our eyes, aside from getting swept away in the undercurrent of the sovereignty of God, we're right here. And we'll be reading this saying, he wants people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. 
Now, I told you a bit ago that we'd revisit the meaning of flesh and blood, so let's do that now. From Leviticus 17, the rest of the thought there in verses 10 and 11, in, verse, in chapter 17 of Leviticus, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and here it is, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Why is Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? It's because he's given us the life of the flesh and the blood to make atonement for our souls. Do you see what's happening there? This helps us to understand that Jesus is using the terminology of flesh and blood to point to his sacrificial work on the cross. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and it is blood that makes atonement by the life. Jesus is saying that he has come into this world as bread, as that which satisfies the hunger of our souls, right? Well, how does he do that? How is he going to bring the soul's satisfaction? It's by taking on flesh. What, was, what chapter did we first find that word flesh in? Anyone remember? How about the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Why? So that he could give his flesh for the life of the world. As he gives his flesh, as his flesh is, is torn from his body, as he's beaten and flogged, what happens? His blood spills. His flesh is torn, his blood is spilled, and this happens for the life of the world. It's true that all men who are born will die, but Jesus was born that he might die for that purpose. He came to this world to die. He came to this world to take on flesh, and not just take on flesh, but to have his flesh torn in such a way that his blood would spill so that he could make atonement for the sins of the people that the Father gave to him. The cross did not take Jesus by surprise, is another way to say it. Jesus came here to go to the cross. And while the cross is the great place where we see the incredible love and grace and mercy of God, it's also violent. It's also horrendous. It's also scary to look at. Because there hangs a man dying whose flesh is torn from his body, whose blood is spilling. But it had to be this way. The flesh had to be torn. The blood had to be spilled. Why? Because the people that the Father gave to the Son must be cleansed and redeemed. But what does it mean then to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Doesn't that understanding just make his statement even more crass? No. It would be easy just to give you the answer, though. Many of you probably already know the answer because you're good Bible students, but I want us to look at it. Verse 29. Look at the progression. Look at the similarity of words and thoughts. Verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That you believe in him. Verses 32 and 33. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal Life, Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you see it unfolding? Do you see how Jesus is just reiterating what he has been saying all along? That he came, and if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. So now he's just explaining more of what it means to believe in him and exactly what you are believing in. He used the sign of the bread and the fish at the beginning of the chapter. That miraculous provision that was more than enough for everybody that seemingly came out of thin air, the provision that was not helped at all by human effort, he used that sign to point to the greater truth of himself as bread, as the miraculous provision for his people. Now, how does this teach us about belief, though? Well, imagine there had been a group of people in the crowd at the beginning of chapter 6 who were watching the food just miraculously multiply, And they were looking at each other and saying, I have a gluten allergy. I'm allergic to shellfish. I can't eat that. Or I don't want to eat that. I don't like bread. I don't like fish. I'll just wait till we get home. They could have seen the miracle. They could have watched the food multiply. They could have seen them take the food from the little kid, take his little lunch, his little lunchable, and see it multiply to feed thousands of people. And they could have said, wow, that's amazing. And they could have been sitting across from somebody who was eating it and saying, you've got to try. This is the best food I've ever had in my life. You have to eat some. Why won't you eat some? Eat some of the food. You're hungry. But if they had just sat there and not eaten, would they have benefited at all from the miracle? Would they have received any nutrients from the bread and the fish? Would they have had been given the strength to be able to make the journey back home? No. They could have believed a lot of things about the miracle and not have benefited from it. In the same way, those whose hearts are hard, who are dead in sin, they can see Christians being satisfied in Christ. They can hear of his goodness. They can hear, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. They can hear of his sacrificial work on the cross and even be invited to partake of it and even believe that Jesus was a real person who actually lived, who actually died on a cross. They can believe all of these things to be true. But if they have not believed in Jesus, they will not be benefited in the slightest by his work. In other words, they will not have life in themselves if they do not eat the bread, eat the flesh, and drink the blood. Think of how perfect an analogy this is that Jesus is using. Has anyone ever been to a restaurant? Now tell me, when you went to that restaurant, did they say, hey, you know, come on back to the back? We just, we have a policy here. We'd like everybody to see exactly what our uh, conditions are like back here. We want you to see our 52-point protocol for sanitary um, you know, cleaning. and we, we want you to see everybody has gloves on. Everybody changes their gloves every time they touch a new piece of meat. Uh, all, all of our dishes are washed in 1,000-degree water. I don't know. All of these things are happening. Look at where we source our food from. So that way you can know that it's been tested, rigorously tested. There are no pesticides. There's nothing in it. Now, what would you like to eat? Does that happen, or do you walk in and say, give me enchiladas, and you eat them, and you're eating with a fork that's been in thousands of people's mouths, but it has, and then you put a straw in the cup because you don't want the germs of the cup, but the fork is in your mouth. And do you ever for one moment, you will now, but have you ever for one moment stopped and said, this is maybe gross? Have you ever stopped for just one moment and thought, can, what's going on back there? Can, can we just go see and make sure everything's clean? No. Why? Because you know how to exercise faith. You're eating it. And you're trusting that this is good for me. 
And even if it's not the most nutritious snack in the world, you're trusting that this is going to give me energy to my body. But more importantly, that this is not going to poison me. But doesn't that happen just so subconsciously? Really what you're thinking is, this is delicious. This is great. Can we get some more salsa? Can we get some more of that? Hey, you've got to go try this place. Do you see how this is just the perfect analogy? As you enjoy the meal and it's digested in your body, the nutrients from that meal go and serve a function all throughout your body, sustaining your life. And as you eat and feast upon Christ, and as he gets into your soul, his benefits go throughout all of your soul. You are benefited from, from eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So, what it means to believe is to eat. Augustine said it well, if you have believed, if you have believed, you have eaten. If you have eaten, you have believed. To eat Christ's flesh and to drink his blood is to take him in. It is to, by faith, appropriate him. It is to take him in, and as you take him in, he nourishes your soul, giving it life. But the power is not in the eating. Verse 55. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. You and I can eat metaphorically speaking, of a lot of different foods that promise to satisfy our hearts, but never will. So it's not the eating that is unto salvation. For many things that you partake of will lead you to eternal destruction. We live in a time where we have more food than ever that's marketed as nutritious that's absolutely not. Gabby and I have been trying to become more conscientious of reading labels, which is a huge mistake. By the way, don't do that, because there is just poison in everything, terrible things in our food, in all of the foods that we eat, and I'm not saying this to lecture you because I feel horrible, but we eat it, and we take it in, and we say, it's good for me, but it's the same thing with what we feed our souls. How often are you conscious of what you're feeding your soul. How often are you paying attention to what you're watching, to what you're listening to, to how you're talking, to the people you surround yourself with? How often are you paying attention to what you feed your soul? This world promises you satisfaction everywhere you turn. Watch some pornography. It'll satisfy you. Come and eat at the table of money. It'll satisfy you. Come feast on relationships. It'll satisfy you. But none of these things can because the power for satisfaction is not in the eating. It's in eating of Christ, of feasting on him. And so, lastly and finally, the life-giving offer from Jesus. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The things of this world promise you life. They promise you satisfaction, but they can't satisfy. But here Jesus is in the face of all of that dissatisfaction, of all of those lies, and he's promising you satisfaction. Well, how do we know that he can actually satisfy? How do we know that he can actually give us life? Well, if you remember from John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life. The life was the light of the world. He can give life because he has it. And what's the big word for that? It's because he's self-existent. Because all things exist in him. Isn't it amazing, by the way? That spiritual death came into the world from eating. And spiritual life is offered to you by eating. Spiritual death came when Adam ate of the fruit. But Christ died 
so that you can eat of his flesh and live? That is an amazing way that all of the Bible tells one story. This eating of Christ happens in two ways, and then we'll close. Very quickly. First, it is in coming to Christ, in trusting in his atoning work. That is when you first eat, is whenever you have trusted in Jesus. But the second way is an ongoing eating, or as the text in the ESV has it, feeding. Do you know what that word is often used to indicate? It's like an animal eating all day, like a cow out grazing in the field, feeding. It's an ongoing eating. So, verse 53, he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's referring to the once and for all partaking of Christ, but it doesn't stop there. You then feed on him the rest of your life. Verse 56, verse 57, verse 58. They all say, whoever feeds on me. This is ongoing Verse 56 introduces the idea of abiding in Christ, remaining in Him. How do you remain in Christ? You feed on Christ, ongoing, every day. That's the second way that we partake of, of His flesh. It's by daily communing with the Lord. What does that mean? Opening your Bible, reading it, cherishing it. Praying through the word, meditating on the word. You do not feast on Christ by reading the Bible as fast as you can on your way out to work so that you can say that I read the Bible this morning so that I don't feel bad today. You feast on Christ by coming to the word and saying, I'm hungry. Would you satisfy me again? That's why the psalm says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast Love, because you're hungry and you need more of his word. You're not quick to live off of yesterday's meals, are you? Aren't you quick to say, I need something to eat? I'm hungry. But do we ever do that with our soul? We try to live on yesterday's provision. But this is what it looks like. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So, very practically speaking, this isn't the point of the text. But just as a practical point to take with you this week, I encourage you, as you come to the Bible, come to feast. This week, change the way that you think about it. Don't just say, I, I have to read the Bible today because I, I have to stay with my... Don't say those things. Say this week. Look at the pages of Scripture as food for your soul and pull up a chair and feast on the delicious, life-giving truth found on every page of Scripture. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for comfort in your word, for the cutting of your word. We thank you for the profound wisdom we come across. We thank you for making us aware of our hunger for Christ. And we pray that you would help us to ever be aware of it as we live our lives. That we would feast on him through the pages of the word. We pray this in his name. Amen.